we've somehow built this idea where we believe that we are separate from nature, that everything else in nature has like cycles of death and destruction and fallowness and rebirth and blooming and growing and then death again. And we have come to believe that that doesn't apply to us. Like humans are some kind of like wacky exception to that rule and that we are supposed to, you know, like a fluorescent light, just be like on all the time. And that if we fail to do that, or if we don't want to do that, there's something wrong with us, or that we are less important. I am Holly Whitaker. And I'm Emily McDowell. And this is Quitted, a podcast about quitting. So, I think it's time to talk about this. So I have been listening to ASMR for, (laughs) I've been listening to ASMR for a really long time, for like seven years, probably. One of my clients, when I was first a recovery coach, told me about it. I sent Emily, I don't even know what I said the other day. What did I, I said something to you and was like. You were like, you were like, I have a confession. I think we were like, just confessing things to each other and you were like oh. I think you need to know this now that I listen to ASMR <laughs> like take it or leave it take me or leave me but like I think you need to know this about me and I was like oh my god you listen to ASMR because I do too you said and you said gentle whispering you said please fold you were like fold my like, linen oh. napkins and I was like <laughs> unbox your new camera and we were going back and forth with all of this ridiculous shit iron like your, scratch the wooden brush shirt. crinkly shirt <laughs> crinkly shirts <laughs> and then we're like we both listened to fucking southern ASMR and we were like she's prolific and Mary she organizes uh, nail polish in Walmart and oh my god she goes to the Goodwill and she gets these little grab bags of like jewelry and then she like pulls it out <laughs> she is really good at um, library role play so, she's great at it <laughs> She has all these characters, like sometimes she does baking and she, and anyway. I just, I, I've, you're the first person that I have met that like, I, that like, first of all, I don't tell many people that I listen to ASMR and I think it's just because it's like puritan, like it's the same thing as like telling people you listen to porn, like that you listen, that you watch porn or listen to porn. I think there's just like, there's a, mm-hmm. there's a, there is a comfortable, like a, 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 a shame curve. And I think that. I masturbate, I watch porn, whatever. And like, I also listen to ASMR. And I it has been one of these things that for a really long time, I'm just like, how do I explain to people that I'm like watching sometimes like this girl that's like showing me her gel pin set and like it's helping <laughs> me fall asleep. Like her nail polish. <laughs> right, like, what? Like, and that it's fine. And that it's just like this thing that I do that actually like calms me down and makes me, you know, like not want to jump out of my skin. And um, yeah. yeah, it makes me fall asleep. And like, so I didn't just I, I just realized this now as you said it like that I categorize ASMR and masturbation in the same bucket in my brain. Which yeah, is I know, like, right? Which is like what? But what is that though? It's pleasure, right? Like it's like some it's kind pleasure. of pleasure. Like it's right it's body. It's it's like physical pleasure, which is interesting, right. and I hadn't ever thought about it that way. Yeah, but yeah, well, I mean, and it's not so, sexual. Like it's not like a fetish. No, it's, not it's not sexual. There it's are like some that are sexual, but we're not. We don't listen to them. Like neither of us just, which <laughs> but is no, fine and if no you do. shame. Like right. just want to say no shame, but like neither of us 
is into the sexual <gasps> ones. And it's funny. What made us laugh was that we are into all the same ones. Yeah, I know. I know. And like, I was like, oh my God, like Tingle Fix, like she does this fab fit fun unboxing. And then she asked me for it. And I was like, oh yeah, I forgot. Also, she just planned her garden um, and she went through seed packets. And like you and I both like understand and appreciate like that's exciting. And I'm going to do that. And I'm going to do that while I work. So anyway, um, you do so it that's while our you intro work? to today's show. Yeah, I do. Oh, see, I only listen to it when I'm falling asleep. And in fact, in my house, my boyfriend knows of it as the lady. <laughs> like he, that's how, that's his shorthand no. for all a, people who do ASMR. Because I don't listen to dude ASMR. I just <gasps> listen to women. And the men don't make me fall asleep. So we say like, I'm going to listen to the lady. And he knows, like in his head, that's you're watching Maria fold sheets. Yeah. Like... <laughs> <laughs> but it could be anyone. It could be or a spaghetti squash with a you know chicken sausage. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. I, we actually I realized this. We we started talking about it because we were talking about um, Sleep with Me, which is a podcast by Scoots that I um, also appreciate. He is a man, um, and Scoots rambles about fucking tons of shit and helps me fall asleep. Um, so anyway, so ASMR. If you're one of us, um. <laughs> And if you're not, I'm sorry. (laughs) And that none of that just made sense. So today uh, we want to we want to move into the episode. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Cool. So real quick before we do that, I just want to remind everybody that Quitted is a weekly podcast with new episodes dropping every Thursday. Before you forget, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Quitted is listener supported. It's made possible by us and by you. You can support this podcast by joining our Patreon community at patreon.com forward slash quitted. You can also support us just by rating the show, writing a review of us, downloading it, right? Like subscribing to us. There's there's all sorts of ways that you can help us get this out there. So today we are talking about essentially why we're doing this show. And Emily and I have a lot of reasons. We worked for months actually brainstorming about this. We created a pitch deck, an appendix, another appendix, another document. <laughs> we collected articles all summer and we passed ideas back and forth. And, and we really, when we were talking about this, we had so many different ideas of, of why people needed this and why we needed this. And I think one of the things we want to do today is really each of us take turns talking about probably our our top five reasons for creating the show. Yeah. And what it is about endings that feels so fascinating and interesting and necessary to talk about. Yeah. You want to go first? (gasps) Well, sure. So I think that the first one feels like it is very close to home, which is that it's because I am very, very comfortable with the endings of things. And I thought this was really interesting. So in March of this year, maybe February of this year, when I was in the middle of leaving Tempest or of 2020, not this year, I was staying at a friend's house and I was reading a lot of Joan Didion as one does. And I read Goodbye to All That Again, which is her essay about leaving New York from slouching towards Bethlehem. And in it, she says, it's easy to see the beginnings of things and harder to see the ends. And when I read that, I was very perplexed by it because I 
to me, it was so the opposite of how I view things. I have always seen the end of a relationship before it's over. Endings are very, very clear to me. And they're also my comfort zone. When I read that quote, and then I started talking to, I was staying at Azita's house, and I was talking to Azita about it. And I said to her, I think, why is it that I always run from burning buildings? And then she said, who stays in a burning building? And we had this long conversation about being very comfortable in destruction and being very comfortable in the like in the ending space. Like I love breaking up with somebody. I love quitting a job. Oh, I love who leaving a city. <laughs> I guess the reason that I'm saying this is my number one reason for exploring the show is I wonder if there's something wrong with me, right? Because (laughs) if Joan Didion's like, I never saw the ending coming, and Joan Didion only sees beginnings, right? And I wonder how many people that's normal to, right? That they just don't see endings coming. And how many of us there are that are just constantly seeing things through the lens of death and destruction, and also enjoying it when it happens. Like, I, it doesn't mean I, I like what happens right after the ending, and I want to talk about it in a second, but I want to stop there and just say, does that feel like, do you? Oh, that's so, it's just so interesting to me because I am the opposite of you, ah. but I don't think that means there's something wrong with you. <laughs> no, in I know. Fact, I think that I think that I, it's not about, not seeing endings for me it's more that endings terrify me huh really because i because i think that i and i'm working on this is something i'm actively working on but i think that i have used my idea of the identity my identity as something that keeps me safe and something that is dependable and that i can count on and like And so when something happens that challenges my idea of who I am or challenges my identity in any way, it takes me a minute and it feels like something, like I really, really resist anything that requires me to like pull a ripcord myself historically, you know, especially when I was younger, I would, I really resisted being the one to first like implement a change. Yeah. Because it was it just it just felt so scary. It change felt so scary. And then as soon as I was in it, it's it's okay. Like I actually can really roll with change as soon as I'm in it, but the idea of willingly bringing about an ending has been something that's been very scary to me. I think that's so weird because I, to me, I find it to be really exciting, right? It's weird for somebody that has so many addiction issues, right? I don't have, I don't have a lot of anticipation in going on, right? Meaning I am typically not, if I've made a decision, let's just say that when I left San Francisco to move to New York, 
I made the decision around early March and I, it took me like a day. And that was like such a huge life decision, right? And I was like, well, this makes sense. I'm obviously going to do it. And it, within no time, you know, I had a moving company, packing my stuff up. I figured out how to ship my car, figured out how to take a cat on a plane, you know, all the important stuff. And, and it was a very quick thing. And there was no, I was just, I was already there. I am very decisive and and very much like uh, excited about the like I it almost just you know like almost if I see in my mind almost like a you know the end scene of Fight Club or like an imploding building just like collapsing in on itself and like woof done and now it's on to the next thing and I don't like goodbyes I move quick and I just get the fuck out of there and so when I say that what do you get do you move quick and just get the fuck out of there sometimes you know what I'm when you're talking what I'm realizing is the endings that scare me the most that I feel the most resistance around are the ones where people are involved, where it triggers all my people pleasing stuff, where I don't want to disappoint other people or I don't want to, you know, I don't want to fail in their eyes or something like because I have I have made very quick decisions about leaving a city or, you know, changing a job or shifting big pieces of my life. But the ones that really, that I really struggle with and that like keep me up at night and that I agonize over are the ones where a relationship is ending, whether it's a friendship or a relationship or whatever it is, where there's a human component. Yeah. I think it's when you say that, Then it reminds me that I also almost as a compassionate and, you know, people pleasing and all that stuff, when it comes to this is what I've decided to do, that's when people stuff factors in the least. I remember when Mm. I told my family I was moving to New York and I didn't when they were rocked by it. Right. It's a huge, huge change for them my mom lived just a few hours away from me my sister was going to be left with an aging parent right and there was I wasn't going to see my nieces and nephews as much it was a very big change and I was almost resentful that they had any reaction to it at all right just as if Mm. like I have already decided this we're all on board with this you know you don't get an opinion but I think in general coming back to the point of this I do feel like I really get excited about like I'm about to move (laughs) from New York to California and I'm just like, let's blow this popsicle stand, you know, and I am so excited about the ending of something and the like just not having to worry about things I was worried about a couple weeks ago, like making community here or being, you know, whatever, just like this, the stuff that like all it's like this immediate leaving is sometimes an immediate release from a lot of things that feel heavy and so I think that's kind of like I one of the reasons I like them because it's just like well let's wipe this slate clean and even saying that makes me breathe deeper so Mm. that's my number one and I think uh, I'll talk a little bit about this the other side of that which is I don't do really well what right after the ending I love like for instance breaking up with people but I hate them like I forget how much I hate the first few weeks or month the after. aftermath. Oh, yeah. And that's really consistent across all situations. I can't forget that. Like, I think that that's part of why 
part of why endings are so hard for me is because I have fear and anticipation around the period after the ending. Yeah. Where I'm like, fuck, I know what's coming. And so it's easier to just not do it sometimes, you know, or to make this be done for me or to like weird passively aggressively work the situation into happening in my favor where I don't have to do, you know, just just kind of shitty stuff that I'm not proud of. But that sounds like impulse control to me. And that's what I'm saying. Like impulse control is the ability to like, it's like the marshmallow test. And these are all like really like puritanical and productivity based, capitalistic based, you know, indicators of who's going to succeed, the person that has more self-restraint or not. But still, I, you know, typically have lower impulse control than the majority of the population, I feel. And Mm -hmm. uh, it's something I have to really work with. But when I hear you talking, I think, you're thinking through consequence and I'm not. <laughs> and that is what I meant at the beginning. So anyway, that's my number one, which is I love endings. I, I also think it's, I think it's just like anything. It's a strength and a weakness. And I think like both sides of it, your experience of it, you know, your, your cautionary pr- approach and my kind of like fucking blow it up and move um, are two. I think those are two really, um, you know, they can be seen both as strengths and weaknesses, depending yeah, on. Yeah, for sure. What's your number? What's your first reason that you want to do this podcast? White Indians. My number one reason is that the our whole idea of what success and failure is, is so twisted in our culture, I think, where we have this expectation that as human beings, we are supposed to produce and be active and grind it out and make and endure a hundred percent of the time when nothing else in nature does that. Mm -hmm. You know, we've somehow built this idea that we are separate from nature, that everything else in nature has like cycles of, of death and destruction and fallowness and rebirth and blooming and growing and then death again. And we have come to believe that that doesn't apply to us. Like humans are some kind of like wacky exception to that rule. And that we are supposed to, you know, like a fluorescent light, just be like on all the time. And that if we fail to do that, or if we don't want to do that, there's something wrong with us. And that if we can't do that, that we are lesser than, that we are, we our lives are less worthy or that we are less important. And if we fail to do it, that we are, that that's what success is. You know, that success is this like perpetual growth motion machine. Rise and grind, yeah. Rise and grind and build mm-hmm. no matter what. And I think all of that is so, is so damaging and I think it's bullshit. And so I think that our whole idea like I wanted to I really want to examine just our whole idea of like what failure is and how we measure quote-unquote success god that's so good when you say that I think it's one of those things I remember I read a book by Rebecca Campbell years ago and she talked about god it was like rise sister rise (laughs) and I remember reading it and she talked about the maiden and the mother and the wild woman and the crone and how we cycle between these four archetypes 
during our our cycle. And I was so struck dumb by that, that the idea that I might be changing throughout the course of the month and that I had these different expressions of energy based on whether or not I was primed to get pregnant or, you know, shedding that. And like, so I, it had never occurred to me, which I was at that time, probably, what is this, 43? I mean, I was in my late 30s. And I had never considered that I might build my life around my cycle, right? And when I just had that small amount of information, I remembered it just, it changed me. And I started tracking my cycle and also expressing myself and I was like oh I'm you know like based on where I was in my cycle and it it lined up and then who has time for that right I I think that lasted for like a week or two weeks or three weeks and then I just found an app and I plugged it into my app and I tried to fit it back into the schedule of productivity instead of fitting product you know production into the schedule of me of you yeah biologically and actually i i learned something really interesting from kate northrop's book do less she said that men's hormonal cycles are 24 hours and women's are 28 days um if you have a you know regular period and so our clock like how we how we measure time the way that like linear time was literally built according to like optimize men's so mad i'm so mad right now um that's shock i mean it's not shocking that's not fucking shocking at all yeah they get linear time (laughs) and we get like tampax commercials like i don't know we get you know (laughs) yeah douche yeah douche (laughs) (laughs) but you know no matter who you are we have this expectation that you know, in every day is productivity and that productivity is the freaking end all be all. Yeah. Well, we've, it's what we value. We value output. We value like making ourselves into machines. I remember reading Robin Arzon's, um, I like, I was obsessed with these, like how they get it done because I couldn't get it done. I was mm-hmm. like, Oh my God, I read the four hour work week like five times. And I was like, how Tim Ferriss, how? <laughs> I never made it work. But, but you know what articles I'm talking about though? The like how this person gets it done and they mm-hmm. like wake up at a certain time and this they is wake what up they at eat for breakfast. And then mm-hmm, this is mm-hmm. what they, well, like I remember reading hers and she's like, I sleep for 10 hours and I'm a vegan and I wake up at nine and I work out five hours a day and I get my hair put in braids. And it was this very, very, um, I mean, I think that I I wrote about in my book, the difference between discipline and commitment, right? And discipline is like whipping ourselves and beating ourselves, right? Disciplining ourselves, punishing ourselves into a thing that we think we're supposed to do. And commitment is just like this idea of like, of of having an intention and, and committing to that intention. And I think that when I read an article about you know, how this person gets it done or how that person gets it done. It feels so oppressive to me because yeah. I feel that 
my body refuses to do that. And so I still feel very stuck between I absolutely believe in schedules and I believe in creating, you know, some kind of like consistency to, to take care of myself and take care of my body, but it feels very chaotic. Um, anyway, I just feel like that was a very big tangent. So uh, I love your number one. I think it is really great and swell. I'm going to go to my um, number two. Yeah. So my number two is kind of like yours in that I want to talk about failure, but let me try and pull this apart. So why? what is it about endings that I'm fascinated with? Well, it's also this idea that failure, right? Like what is, what is failure? So failure is an outcome that you – um, had a different expectation for than what happened, right? It's a, mm-hmm. a, a different outcome than what you had hoped for or intended. Yeah. It's an ending, right? A failure is typically it's that the, the, it's something has run its course and you have a you have a an outcome and you look at the outcome and you judge it against what you'd hoped. And I think that when I think of failure, I also talked about failure at length in my book because relapse is this really specific kind of failure, right? Like if you have committed to not using drugs or not drinking or, you know, not watching porn or whatever it is that you are trying to abstain from or recover from. Well, let's just stick with the basics here. Let's just say you try not to drink and you drink. We call that relapse. And it's this really specific kind of failure. Like when when that happens, typically and traditionally, you go back to square one, right? Like you lose your your time count. And a really like recent and specific example of this is Jack Shepard. I think he had like 10 mm-hmm. years of sobriety and then he was using and he and his he did a podcast on this called Day 0 or Day 1. And we have this idea that when, you know, and specifically in drug addiction that it's not failure, it's not really like trial and error and figuring it out, which is what failure is, right? It's a it's the courage to try something and the courage to fail. And so I've thought a lot about this, meaning I've thought about failure as we look at it recently. And the way that we look at it recently is through the lens of failure is what you do to the way of becoming great. And we have failure fests and we have this idea of glorified failure but we it's very specific it's it's only glorified we only praise it and love it if the if you're not in the failure itself if you are the step beyond the failure when you have used your failure to make a greater success than you would have had you not failed and so i've i've examined failure in that way because i think it's really fascinating how much we have in the last you know 10 20 years like especially because of silicon valley turned the failure into you know like turned to failure porn and then you have this other area that i also study which is recovery and it doesn't exist there no one is like and that real you know and that fender where I was snorting cocaine out of that guy's ass was what got me to this moment they're typically moments where you're you lose your cred and you get you know whipped back and why is this well I mean because we think that it's it's a very puritanical model it's a very non-compassionate model and it doesn't we look at failure in in abstinence as a lack of all sorts of things that humans are supposed to have so I, I don't have an answer here I'm just saying that I think that what 
I really want to explore, and I think something you and I are both really interested in, and and especially since I'm in it right now, I've had a big failure, like a big one, right? Um, it doesn't get bigger than that, and I think like and I and I mean, you know, like starting a company and then. Ooh, like, you know, and then having this idea that you're going to become some very successful entrepreneur person and then, you know, and, and I'm not that, right? I am financially insecure. I am starting over in a lot of different ways. I don't have my after story. I have not risen mm-hmm. and I'm not no, coming to during, you. Right. right. I'm in the during and right. I'm not coming to you with this like – Look at me, you know, like I took this thing and I got up and then I created whatever. And I don't plan to really do that, you know, like I'm not planning my comeback. And I am actually trying to use this as a different way of being so that I never go so that I don't fool myself again into thinking that I that I am my success. So to me, oh, so the, important. Right. And so, so that's I, the thing. That's the thing. So that's number two for me. I mean, that thing is so important because what all of the sort of failure porn does and when we when we value failure only as a stepping stone to something great is it doesn't allow for an outcome. It doesn't allow us to value an outcome that is anything other than this like prescribed definition of what success is. And like, there are so many things that you could learn from a quote unquote failure that would lead you down another path that one might argue is actually going to bring about more happiness than building back something better. Like (laughs) there are so many things you can learn and take away from a failure that are so valuable that are not about the next building greater. But the problem is. And I know this because I've been living it. My mind, 70% of the time, is focused on how am I going to get myself out of this, right? How am mm-hmm. I going to make this – how am I going to turn this into – like I, I, it is a thing that I see myself on the hamster wheel of, of like and, – and I catch myself doing it and I go back to honestly all the time when I'm trying to pull myself out of that. It's just like are you enjoying this moment? Do you have a roof over your head? Like, is this enough right now? And Mm -hmm. I do that in particular because I don't want to wait for a future state in order to feel good. I don't want to wait for something to happen down the line that I say that qualifies for me allowing because I've done that before. I've done that's been my trick is waiting for the future to save me. And it it never comes. And so I'm trying to be in this space you know, have it be good enough. So that's my number two. What's your number two? This leads into my number two, which is that we have like infinite guidance on how to make shit happen and grow and build and like, you know, podcasts and seminars and coaches and like, you know, spiritual divinators and everything telling us how to do that. And we have so little guidance and support on how to quit and how to walk away, how to unbuild, how to dismantle something. And, you know, you, what you were just saying is when you're in this thing and you're like, how can I get out of this? Like, that's where your brain goes to. And 
I have been there so many times and you you don't know how to get out of it. And a lot of that is because we don't talk about that. Like we don't we don't talk about what goes through our heads when we have found ourselves in a situation of our own creation most of the time, whether it's like our own choice, like a like a career or a marriage or a religion that we have chosen or just something where we thought this was going to be the thing and then you find yourself in it and you, the moment of realizing, I don't think this is right. I want to get out of this. And then how do you do that? And like, where is the, where are the conversations about that? I think you're, you're so absolutely right because a lot of the time there is, I had this in my notes somewhere and I didn't put this as one of my top five, but when I was building my business, and I'm sure you had the same thing. There was copy blogger. There was like, there was 99U. There was infinite resources and books by so many people that had built organizations and had built you know, had taken something from from vision to, you know, to to actual manifestation. And those were my Bibles. I knew every single trick, right? I had the answer when it was, what happens when this happens? Or what yeah. happens when you experience this? And I had every example that I could possibly wish for because the output of that, right? The output of that is a tangible thing, is a business, is money, is is a thing, right? The output of it, right? Like there's Seth Godin's, there's the dip, you know, there's Ira Glass's video about like the suck curve or whatever it is. And like, there were so many things that I was, I was resource rich in. And then when it comes to actually destroying that thing or walking away from it that i i mean i don't know there's there's this one book called transitions <laughs> you know there is this other book like there's the book by, <laughs> that martha beck just wrote yeah and i think yeah. that oh and then that book wintering you know and mm-hmm. then and then you're done you know that's it yeah and there's Pema Chodron and like there's oh, the, you sure, know but there's sure. not yes but there's so there's lots of th- there's lots of things i think about about how to emotionally handle a transition. Yeah. There's, but there's what there is not a lot of is guidance and roadmaps about all of the other stuff. And, and also what happens to us emotionally in these, in these transitions, like un, un, undoing a marriage, undoing a company, undoing a, just a way of life, whatever that is like, Undoing we, a belief system or undo, yeah. a belief system like the sure. the there just isn't once you make that decision it feels really lonely and I think that it's tied into how so many of us feel that we are alone like we have we are the only one that's ever made that decision or there is something wrong with us for having made this decision for this for not wanting to be where we are 
for wanting to leave for whatever it is. And it's a very lonely place. Well, if you think about it, we celebrate building and we celebrate growing and we celebrate scaling. You reach your first million. You sent, you know, you have your hundred thousandth follower. You shift your 50th product. Mm -hmm. You, you know, you, you got married. You had the baby. You know, and we're like, yay. And then we're like, the, but if the baby dies, the marriage dissolves, the company goes under, you know, you, you're you publicly shamed. No one's like, congrats, you know, and or like even like, let's let's honor this. Everyone is just like, fuck, what do we say? Because we yeah. think we have put a value judgment on those things. The negative things are they're bad, and 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 when it's so weird because getting the hundred thousandth follower, or shipping the fiftieth product, or getting the first million, or having the marriage, or even having the baby, these are not necessarily the things that challenge us and grow us the way that these other lot like the losses do or the endings yeah. do. They don't actually impact us. You know, I'm sure having a baby does. Um, I'm sure lots of mothers would say that having a baby, but I, but all those other things, like when losing stuff and ending stuff, I feel is like that's actually. I never actually got pushed and learned very much about myself from getting everything I wanted. You know? Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that's a really good point, and that does that definitely touches on. Are we on? Are we on mine or on yours? I don't remember. Well, where I'm we going. Are. I haven't done number three, and number okay. three is very simple. And then we'll go to your number three. Um, my number okay. three is I really want to explore this concept of who we are when we aren't hiding behind our purpose. Okay, so that's a really big one. So, what is it about endings? Number three, I was one of those smug ass people that felt like. When I started working on hip sobriety, right, when I was actually still working at my last company and I was considering really that I wanted to work in the addiction space and that I had a lot to say about alcohol and the alcohol industry and addiction and recovery, I was like, oh, my God, I was so convicted. And I was very married to that purpose. And I it felt like a duty. It felt like being um, – you know, it really felt like being – almost like um ordained to do ordained like, by the universe right like, like here's your mm -hmm. job your job is yep. to go and do these things and i didn't question it and i really did have this conversation within myself like i get that this is my purpose but this is a really hard purpose to bear and then this summer after everything happened i just didn't i mean after going through everything that i went through and i mean that like running the company and like you know like all of the shit that comes with that and getting so you know like really just getting run through like getting beat up right like just mm -hmm. like and and getting the care got beat out of me and this summer in 2021 i just I didn't feel like this was my purpose anymore. I didn't care if I, never, if I ever talked about alcohol again or recovery again or oh, God, like it just what felt so compelling was gone. And I think that and and it hasn't returned like I don't feel convicted. I, I, I love addiction and recovery. I actually am very I still am obsessed with it. Like I'm reading like four books on it right now. Like so that hasn't gone away. It came back. But I don't feel the same. I don't think my life's purpose. I don't look at my life's purpose in that same way anymore. I look at my life's purpose of actually just being here and growing as a human being. And we talked about that with Caleb, right? Mm -hmm. So I do think that my third reason for talking about this is that I think endings can often mean we lose 
the reason that we get out of bed in the morning, right? We lose the reason for for existing. Like we lose all of the things that tell us who we are and and, and like that we lose the map and the instructions yeah. and also the drive. And I, I have lost my passion. I've lost my drive. I've, I've lost a lot of things that give me a reason for living. And I think that is a very interesting part of this to explore because I didn't really ever think I would lose that again. I thought I, I had it forever. And and because of that, it's been extremely disorienting. And and Elizabeth Gilbert's talked about this too. I think I think she had it gave a talk once about how she smugly felt like everyone had a purpose. Like the people will tell you that you have a divine purpose. You just need to fucking mm-hmm. uncover it. And once you do, you're forever, you know, and I'm just like, I don't believe that anymore i don't i don't believe that that we all just have like this magical assignment because what happens if we never discover what it is then our fucking life was a waste (laughs) well and i also don't think we have one magical assignment Mm. you know Mm. it's kind of have magical assignments i think we have i think we have many magical assignments and i think that part of the work that we're here to do is follow what our intuition is telling us that we care about, right? Like follow, follow where our joy is and follow where our pain is and follow like finding problems that we want to solve. And, and that can shift and change over a lifetime and it should you know I mean because we shift and change over a lifetime and so I think having one purpose really kind of flattens out you know or or diminishes this idea that there are sort of infinite things in each of us yeah that are threads we could follow and I, I I look at someone like right like Teresa of Avila or I think of like um think of um Mother Mother Teresa, the other Teresa. Um I think of Gandhi, I think of like really significant figures that gave themselves over, right? And I don't have an answer on this. I just think I know like in some of their cases, they had a single pointed focus, right? They really clearly had a single pointed focus of what they were going to do with their lives. And often it was serving, right? But mm-hmm. I think that it has been interesting to because when I had my when I had my purpose, I thought it was in service. It really it felt that way. And I think that it's been really hard to come back from having so much conviction to not having as much and then also realizing it still is just about serving other people and service, mm-hmm. right? And Yeah, that it just doesn't have to – service can look an infinite number of ways. That's right. I know. And and exp- yeah. and also just expressing life through this – anyway. All right. That's all I want to say about that right now just because I still – like I feel very fucked up about it still. And it like I – Again, the reason we're doing this podcast is to learn. So this is one of my lenses I want to bring to this, which is I want to talk to people that have really explored what it is that makes us want to live and stay Mm -hmm. here. Yeah. All right. What's your number three? (laughs) Lighter? (laughs) Breezier? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the last thing, the thing I will say about that too is just like, 
I think that is going to be so helpful for so many people, me included, because none of the shit that we've been taught to believe in the name of happiness and fulfillment is working. Yeah. Like, we're not doing great. No. So, all right. So my number three is I think that it's really important to hear stories that normalize that in-between space after a quit. And that's one of the reasons that I think, you know, that both of us, right, really want to not just bring on people who have gone through something and are on the other side of it and being like, look at my perspective. And from that, I have learned X. And also really bring in people who are in the middle of it and who are trying to navigate that. And in our conversations that we have with folks who have navigated it, to to go back to that space and to talk about that space instead of talking just about, well, where are you now? And what did quitting teach you? And, you know, but to really talk about this unknown, this really groundless, lonely, confusing liminal space. Yeah. And I'd forgotten. I, that was my, this is my number five. Your number three is my number five. I wrote, Mm -hmm. I'm very interested in liminal space. (laughs) (laughs) Of <laughs> finding our value and worth when we can't define who we are. And I think that I have experienced liminal space many times before, but I don't think – I think that there's also – and I have forgotten how very, very confusing, right? Like there is a term that's called forest dwelling, and it is – I believe it's a Hindu term, and it refers to – um, within the Hindu religion and culture, householders, which are, I, I might be messing some of this up, but householders are essentially like practitioners that actually run, they, they don't live in the ashram. They're not, they're not fully dedicated. They are in their homes, you know, working their work, um, you know, doing their practices. And that means that they, you know, are essentially going through their whole life of, you know, having kids and raising kids. And then, a householder when they reach a certain age, I think it's in their 60s or 70s or 80s, but like the, you know, the last stage of their life at that stage, they're set out into the forest to forest dwell and to actually just be in that timeout space. Mm-hmm. Um, they've done their work and then they get to go out and essentially be lost. And so there's this term forest dwelling and there's, and Marion Woodman has this, you know, this wonderful quote about it that I consistently like I wrote it down once and I I find it every few years and I go right back and lose it again but just about the importance of of just spending our time as forest dwellers as just out of our minds and out of time and out of commitment out of out of identity really being in that state of of who am I and also not trying to add like not trying to find ground and i think that that is Mm -hmm. it's such a brave space and i know it because i've been in it and i i have seen myself crumple right so many days just like i can't do this like i'll do anything to not actually feel the pressure of what it means to not have a a clear definition of what i do in this world what my purpose why am i here and i think that 
I, this is the most prolonged period of time I've ever been in. It's also the most prolonged period of time that I've ever been without a job. I've been able to, to, to find myself in that. And I haven't had that. And I just want to die a lot of the time and it feels crushing. And I also see myself wanting to abort this process and just go and be like, mm. let's just get out. Like I, and I can, I'm gonna I do can, this. Mm-hmm. I'm going to do like, this and yeah. I'm going to, and then I'm going to be that. And I, and then I go, well, but, but like, oh, but what a waste of, and I know I'll look back on this and I'll be like, this was such a rich period of time because I didn't abort. I let myself be a forest dweller. And so I think that you're number three, I, same. I think that we have barely begun in our society to explore what liminal space actually is because I have great privilege in experiencing this, right? Like I had enough money in the bank. I had a, a home in the forest, <laughs> weirdly. Um, you know, I had that I had all the elements that allowed for me, you know, not much responsibility, no debt, you know, like just like I was able to actually this time of my life put the pause button. I've never done that before and just allow for myself to just lose my shit. And I think I wonder what our society would look like, you know, not only if we had things like childcare and healthcare, but also if we had things where we as a society really valued you know, things that were extremely normal in indigenous societies and, and in other societies where where work and productivity and you know our, our output are not the god we worship right right and i mean that's exactly what it is is like the second we cease being earning beings yeah our value like our our value in this culture is so tied to that and it's interesting too i think we have so few cultural role models of what that liminal space looks like. Because when you think about even like famous people and you think about, you know, people, people who, you know, movie stars, they go and do all this stuff. And then they like dis quote unquote, like disappear from the public eye for however many years. And the press treats them as irrelevant and they go do whatever they're going to do. And then they come back and have this, mm-hmm. you know, and everyone's like, Oh, they're back. Bah. It's this, this idea that whatever they were doing when they weren't making things for public consumption was less important, was not worth talking about. Like who cares? You know, like this person is here for our public consumption and like fame and, just worth in general it's performative and if you're not in a space where you're performing like do we allow others to see us in that space do we have shame in that you know like there there's just I think there's so many reasons that they're all tangled up about why that liminal space after an ending where this groundless groundlessness lives the forest dwelling, why this forest dwelling is just not visible. Well, and I think it's, it's also, we were talking about this today. There's, um, there's that New York times op-ed and I cannot remember the rabbi who wrote it, but it was written by a rabbi who's disabled. And he talks about the importance of teaching his children to be lazy. 
And I think back on two periods of my life. So when I left my last company, I went to Italy for 50 days in early 2014. I'd been going to bed at like midnight and then I'd wake up at five and I'd done that for years. Mm -hmm. And I had, I was about a year sober at that time. I had been just a few months free of, 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 of smoking pot and cigarettes. I had been just a few months in recovery from bulimia and I had just quit my job and I was going to dominate Rome while I was going to be there for 50 days. And I was like, I'm going to go and build my business there. You know, I had this like very idealized version of what it would look like. I dominate would Rome. I was. And mm-hmm. I, I got in. I think I took a red eye as I did back then to save time or whatever. And I got into Rome and then I checked into my Airbnb and then I took a and then I went on a three mile walk, saw some sites, checked them off the list, took some pictures went to bed, woke up at five, like, you know, went to the train, went to Florence, spent the entire day with some friends, and then went to an Airbnb that night. And we were supposed to go to the, not the Uffizi, but the the one with, doesn't matter, the, I think I could, whatever, the one with David, and you have to line up early in the morning. And I, was supposed to I was like I'll meet you I'll meet you at six we'll get tickets we'll go see the David and I slept through all my alarms I think I woke up at like noon or one and like only because the people that the Airbnb I was staying at were knocking on my door and I did not know what happened and I was like well that's weird my body must have not you know and then the, the same thing happened in Rome and I finally just gave up and I went to bed at like I think I went to bed at two every night. And then I woke up at one in the afternoon and I went through the same process every day. You know, I'd make my hot lemon water. I'd do my meditation. I think I would get out of the house at like three or four or five (laughs) and I'd miss most everything, right? I was the last one at the coffee shop. I would always eat the last pastry. They were very, very sympathetic to me. And that was how the whole thing went. I ended up that, that time I never made it to the fucking Vatican. I never made it to St. Peter's. I didn't do anything that was on my list. It was like, by all means, it was just like such a waste. And my roommate that I was staying with called me lazy one day. And he was, he laughed at me. And he was, and I was like, you don't understand. And I was so upset. I actually wrote a piece about being called lazy because I was so offended that he saw lazy behavior which it was and I and I needed to tell him like well here's my portfolio and I even had my mom call later on that night and talk to Gabrielle and say she works very hard she's just on a break and but like it was just anyway the point is that I think we in our society that that's I've looked at those that period of time as like I of a blip a thing that was not supposed to happen that but like and I also would qualify it with how hard I was working and how I deserved it instead of just like what like normalizing that laziness and and rest and enjoyment or should be baked into the whole thing Anyway. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to the cyclical thing we were talking about earlier, right? right? right. Where we believe that we are somehow, like, exempt from the laws of nature as humans (laughs) and that we don't get to 
that we don't get to rest or that we shouldn't, that resting is lazy or that there are times when we don't have any ideas or motivation or energy or, you know, that like that there's times for all of this. Like this is all, this is what nature does. But the problem is you don't get paid. Like that's the thing is I have been fortunate enough to be able to go with those times. It's like, Mm. like if you think about all the people that need that, and how many people can't even fucking take a day off of work? Well, yeah. Right? Like, absolutely. it's just, it's, it is it is so absolutely, I don't know how we actually start to change this because we no, don't even have. No, and I have, agree. I mean, yeah. that's what this is, that's what, this is so fucking broken. I mean, that's what, like, success, you know, success, just this, like, this whole idea, this, this enmeshment of work and productivity and this 24-7 demand that actually that just harms our humanity. Yeah. Well, and I think it's like when people say we need to like break out of productivity culture, right? That's a really privileged way of saying, I, I you know, I, I think that there's I think that one of the things that I would like to explore in this, just to kind of like wrap this point up, is like how do we start to really explore um, with 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 like you know cultural anthropologists or sociologists or economists or you know social justice advocates? Like, what is it? What does that? How how do we actually create a system that is? That allows everyone to detox from productivity culture. And not yes. Just... <gasps> yeah, and and actually, the people who need it the most, the most, yeah, to detox from it. So my number four is, um, <laughs> I'll just read it. I just simply love destruction. I am attracted to fire. I'm attracted to like endings. I'm attracted to. And thrilled by this idea of dissolving and clearing space. You know, the sequoia tree burns in order to regenerate. And that has always intrigued me and fascinated me. And so I think that, again, kind of going back to number one, but just a little bit different, I am simply fascinated by endings because I think that it's the it's kind of like the most unsung hero of the whole process of life, right? <laughs> So that's my number four. Well, I think that, you know, the thing about an ending is that, like, in order for any new beginning to happen, something has to end first. Like, in order to build anything, the thing that came before it has to be destroyed or end in a quiet way or whatever the, like, other softer way of destruction is. And so it's as much of a, you know, it's 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 as integral of a of a piece of the cycle as rebirth. Right. My number 4 is it's really interesting to me how most of us I think carry around this unfelt grief or shame or resentment or some something around ungrieved endings in our lives because we have no ritual like we have no ritual around closing or letting go or like honoring the thing that was we do weddings but we don't do divorce parties most people don't you know we do launch parties but we don't do celebrations or honoring or ceremony or anything around you know when a company 
goes under or folds or whatever you want to call it. And we don't do death. Our culture is extraordinarily uncomfortable about talking about death, about looking at death, feeling the feelings around death. And so anything that's death adjacent, which a lot of this stuff is, which, you know, which, which quitting and endings falls into that category where people don't know what to say. And we don't know how to, I think, ask for what we need around it. Like, I think that there is discomfort because there's, because there's all these feelings of shame and failure. We don't have language to say to your, to our friends or people who love us, like, I need support around this thing. And people don't know how to support us when we're going through this kind of a thing that really is like a death because it's a, you know, it, it, it kind of follows the death playbook, which is, we don't talk about it. I think it reminds me of Martine Prechtel's um, book, That Smell of um, Rain on Dust. So, which is, I think, the best book that exists on grief. And in it, uh, he talks about grief as, as and, you know, grief is what? Grief is the, if the joy is, is probably the feeling that we have around birth and grief is the feeling that we have around death, right? And what is, you know, or loss, right? And I think that, when we are so comfortable in celebrating, right, anniversaries, marriages, you know, children being born, graduations, birthdays, whatever, all these additive things, right, all these things that suggest, which are which are also kind of endings, right? Like each of them are in some way mm-hmm. an ending, right? Ending of being single, ending of not being a parent, you know, but at the same time, they're joyous occasions. And then when we have these really painful things, right, that are so wrapped in grief, which and, – and grief, as you know, Prechtel says, is just a, an expression the, – the extent of our grief is just the, the extent of our love. And that when we are going through any sort of extraordinary loss, people don't know what to do with us because we don't understand. We don't – we don't like, you know, we sanitize death in this country. We we put it in, you know, we, we embalm it and we put it in its, you know, its Sunday best and we put makeup on it. And that's kind of, I think, a metaphor for what we do with, with it. We just want to see the pretty parts of it. We really can't stand to see up close the falling apart. Yeah. And I think that that is that extends to everything else. Like we are so uncomfortable with how messy destruction is, and 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 what it wreaks, the havoc that it wreaks on us, and the process that it takes to actually live through that. And so we just kind of abandon everybody, mm-hmm. right? And each well, other. I think it makes it makes people afraid because what it brings up in us is, could this happen to me? Right. You know. Right. And so people want to be far from that. Like people don't know. I think most of us don't know how to how to handle that. That and it's also get over it. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it's just I I think that part of our inability to really sit with people 
or to really sit with and celebrate. Like, first of all, we d- it doesn't even occur to us to celebrate endings, right? I think it's just like so antithesis. Like, we think we're supposed to mourn them and to like be very, very upset by them, which of course, but at the same time, I think like it needs cer- – we need ceremony. We need ritualization around this stuff. But then there's also this piece where I think that we are so – we're such a culture of get on with it. We're such a culture of we have so little tolerance. Yeah, I mean, you so get two patience. bereavement days. Yeah, off that's work, right. Right. That's like, right. Right. There's so there's so little patience for processing endings that we've almost just all co-signed this idea that like we're just going to power through it and we're gonna like smile through it and we're going to not actually allow each other to go through the required and proper process to acknowledge this. Yeah. 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 And I think a lot of us don't feel like we, we also aren't allowed to do it. Like not only are we not allowed to do it in terms of culture, society doesn't give us the space and time to do it. The money, right? The money, Right. The privilege, the you know, all of those things, right? But also internally, this idea, I think that a lot of endings come with this idea that like, well, I chose this or this was my fault or there are these stories that we tell ourselves that add up to I am not allowed to grieve this or I shouldn't grieve this or I'm ashamed of this and so I'm not going to talk about it or I don't want to I don't want to hold it out into the light and I think that just normalizing having conversations that normalize giving ourselves the permission to grieve and to understand that that's a part of an ending no matter how the ending came about I think is important. I'm trying to sit here and think of like, what has been my experience of being an extended grieving period? And I think that a lot of the time, people just don't expect me to be in it. And I think that it means that their experience of me, and you've been really great about this, you know, like, most of my days are kind of hard. And I... I'm watching a lot of TV and like I am kind of misanthropic and I don't wash my hair a lot and I acknowledge I actually am fine with this right I'm not worried about myself I don't I I mean I definitely am all the time like worried that I'm just going to be stuck like this but also stepping back I'm not worried that I'm just going to forever be in this place yeah but when I'm around other people it's very hard because life is going on for them. And they think, I don't want to tip them off into thinking something's very, very wrong with me. And like today even I was getting a massage from somebody I hadn't seen in months. She's a friend and she's a massage therapist. And she, there was this day we were supposed to get together and she said, oh, well, you were going through your thing. And when people like acknowledge (laughs) that I'm going through my thing, you know, I know she was great about it. But even when I hear her saying, you just weren't right, you know? I my whole body hurts and I wanna I wanna protest and say yeah. No, no, no. My 
I'm all here. I'm not a yeah. special yeah. case of fucked up, you know? And, like, but also it's just, it, like, it's hard to explain. And I don't necessarily feel I get a lot of latitude with it. Like, I don't respond to a lot of my friends' text messages. One of my friends, you know, wrote me last week. I was like, I really need to talk to you about something. And I was like, I'm trying to not, like, you know, I don't know. I'm I'm trying to just live right now because it's really hard for me to live. It's really hard. And I feel like there's no way to explain this to people that it's hard. And also people have forgotten or they don't know in the first place and they expect me to function normally. And so I think – I guess what I'm saying is it's also really hard to signal to people this is a long extended period of grief and I am not fucking okay, you know? Yeah. And people just want you to be okay or they 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 just think you're, you know, this stuff doesn't take that long and it does. Yeah. Yeah, it does. So, all right, Emily, I already said one of mine was the same as yours. What's your fifth? I want to talk about this stuff because I want us all to remember that it's okay to change. Mm-hmm. that when we are looking at something we need to quit, it's so easy to get stuck in this idea that I can't quit often because it means disappointing the people who are invested in our staying or this idea that I can't change because I'm going to lose X, Y, Z and quitting means threatening the social order a lot of the time. I also think in sobriety, right? Like you become a very different person. Mm, You are like, there is a lot of pressure, right? You are for me, especially I was very shocked by the amount of pressure there was to keep drinking. People were very relieved when I would drink again because, you know, I went very comfortable. Yeah. Yes. Mm -hmm. They want you to be this person and this version forever. And I, it was a very confusing thing to me. And I had to continuously give myself, like I went from being right. Like this, I don't even know what I was (laughs) to being this person that was posting inspirational quotes on, on Instagram, you know? And I remember when I started doing that, I was like posting Course in Miracles stuff and like she quit her day job to chase her daydream and like all of that, you know, very 2014 cliche shit. But I remember I had, I think like 300 people, I was friends with 300 people on Instagram. This is when Instagram was great. And I remember watching them and count and going because it was always follow for follow. So if 300 people were following me, I was following 300 people. And I was watching as I was like becoming this person in real time as people were divesting from me and Mm. it was and it was a lot right and I think that it was so hard because I thought I wasn't allowed to be this new person that some committee was going to come and say like step it back you aren't allowed to be you're not allowed to be spiritual you're not allowed Mm -hmm. to believe in God you're not allowed to not drink yeah right and I think that so been there went through that but I think what's so interesting is how we can hear these platitudes You are allowed to change, right? And But yet, at the same time, people are – like, people leave when you change. And I think that that is – it just – like, it is – 
I think for as much as I have worked to disassociate myself from, you know, living my life based upon what people are are going to approve of, it never stops hurting when people look at the new version of you and then they're like, no And say unsubscribe. Yeah, no, (laughs) of course that hurts. Of course Ooh, that fucking what? hurts. We don't like this one. We like we I was yeah, in for like, the, we like version the one. one, two, three, four, five. I was all the way up through version twenty two at version twenty three. It's like, <laughs> no. We're done. Yeah, we want classic Coke. Thanks. Um <laughs> I I think even though classic Coke is killing you, I mean that's because that's also I think what must have been so so fucked up when you are sober and you have people who really want you to be drinking because it makes them more comfortable or they just miss the they miss the old version of you who was drinking right and you're like yeah but that version of me was dying yeah, I know. And and that's the, and it's the same. It's the same in, in all sorts of things, right? Like as, mm-hmm. as we change and right, like a, an ending will always mean a change, right? Like it always necessitates a change, right? If we're leaving a church or an institution, if we're believe if we're leaving a belief system, if we are making a dietary change, there's so many things that actually have such collateral and there's like first order collateral which is the immediate effect but then there's all the like additional dominoes that fall once Mm -hmm. like you become this different person and i think like you get a divorce for instance well what are all the levels of of change that are there's that one change and then there's all of this stuff like you lose communities you lose friendships you lose potentially kids you you know there's so much stuff that comes with it and so i think that it is it never, I guess, like in summary, it never fails to impress me, no matter how much we change, how much we can feel that we aren't allowed to become the people that we're becoming and how much we feel we need buy-in from everybody else um, in order for it to be like like everyone else's permission and agreement and thumbs up in order for us to to do it. So I love that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that's a nine. <laughs> that's a lot. I mean, lot I think that there's so many reasons we wanted to start this. And we, there's so many reasons that we personally are obsessed with this topic of endings, quittings. And I think that this is just a small fraction of them. And what I am so grateful for is this platform to be able to pull these, you know, some of these really big ropes, but also some of these really fine threads. Mm, that's a great way to put it. I love that. This is Quitted, a podcast about quitting, hosted by Holly Whitaker and Emily McDowell. Our music and sound engineering is by Michael Blumenfeld, and our producer is Kathleen Kizich. Quitted is made possible by us and by our listeners. To support the show, join our Patreon community at patreon.com forward slash quitted. Please. Please.